Welcome to Where I Come From, a new podcast dedicated to Nebraska sports figures and the life experiences that shaped them. I'm your host, Dirk Chatlin, and this week's guest is Bruce Rasmussen, Creighton Athletic Director and former Blue Jays women's basketball coach. We talked about growing up on the wrong side of the tracks in small town Iowa, his random run-ins with Bruce Jenner and Phil Knight, the day Dana Altman came back from Arkansas, and where the sport of basketball has gone wrong. You know, my grandpa used to say, if the grass always looks greener on the other side of the fence, you're not taking very good care of your yard. I saw her as a seventh grader take two dribbles from half court, go up and grab the rim. So I charged my phone when I got up at six in the morning. There were like 10 calls from Dana. Really? Basically every hour from like 10 at night till five in the morning. He says, we need to talk. This is where I come from. Bruce Rasmussen, thanks for joining us. This is, uh, this is very cool. Uh, you're one of the smartest people in Omaha. <laughs> and uh, I want to start you off with a tough one. In 1994, you knew exactly who you wanted to hire as basketball coach. In 2010, you knew exactly who you wanted to hire as basketball coach. If something would happen to Greg McDermott tomorrow, do you know who exactly you want to hire? I've got a uh, what you would call a short list. Not, not a short list in terms of height, but a short list in terms of people I would call, yes. You moved really efficiently the first two times. I mean... Well, you met with Greg within 24 hours. You met with Dana before the job was even open. Uh, you you must have deemed that really important to to act decisively. Well, with Coach McDermott, I knew Dana was leaving 48 hours before it was announced, so I really had more of a head start than people thought, and and I talked to more people than Coach McDermott. Uh, those. There's a confidentiality there that uh, that I won't betray, but there were uh, I ended up talking to five people. Really? And my first phone call, and I told Coach McDermott that my first phone call would be to him, and my first phone call was to him. He just didn't answer. <laughs> uh, he had recruits on campus, so I had to go through the women's basketball coach at Iowa State, Bill Fenley, who's a good friend of mine, and tell him that, hey, I've been trying to call Coach McDermott all day, and he won't answer and Coach Finley went to Coach Mack's house to get a hold of him. But in the meantime, I talked to some other people. So. Um, 2007, when Dana left for 24, 48 hours, did you, had you started the process at that point? No, because when Dana left, and that one, was, that one happened a little bit more quickly, uh, Dana... We all know how Dana's wired, and the best time to get to Dana's right after they we've lost. Nobody takes losses harder than Dana. But he went to the Final Four that year, or yeah, he went to the Final Four that year. Uh, it was it was the week before the Masters, and uh, uh, he was depressed because we didn't have a great year not as good as we thought, he's exhausted. And the Arkansas AD got in touch with him 
And when Dana came back and told me, typically I knew the entire process because he would communicate with me, but he got it, they got in touch with him at the Final Four. And then um, when he came back, he'd made up his mind he was going. So I, we didn't have as much dialogue on that. However, Dana said that, I said, why did you take, why did you agree to Arkansas and not some of the other, what in my opinion were better jobs? And he said that he felt like he needed to do it. Uh, he didn't say he wanted to do it. He felt like he needed to do it. And there were two issues. One, he was looking at his family. But two, his assistant coaches. Every time he turned down a job, uh, the assistants wouldn't talk to me for a while because they thought I had talked him out of it. And our assistants thought that they could, well, first they'd get a big pay raise. And secondly, they thought they'd have a better chance of being a Division One head coach if Dana had taken another job. So... You know, there were a, a number of years where people had talked to him and uh, he had turned down the jobs, but that didn't make me real popular with the assistants. So <laughs> I think he felt like for the assistants, for his staff, for his family, he needed to take the job. But he never said, it's a job I want. It's a job I think I need to have. It's, uh, uh, but when I met with the players after he left, I told them that I would not make any calls to coaches and I wouldn't take any calls from coaches until I'd done these things. I was calling their parents. I would meet with them individually in my office. I would call their parents and I would call the parents of recruits. And the reality is that I had done that and was continuing to do that. My cell phone went dead uh, because it caught me by surprise. I didn't have a charger in my office, but my cell phone went dead, and then I'm on the office phone, and understand we had some kids out in California, Kenny Lawson and, and Kenton Walker, and I had long conversations with their folks and asked them to sit, you know, talk to them about here and the process I'd go through and be patient and so forth. And I got home about two in the morning, and I said to my wife, um, I got a, a, my alarm set for six, if I don't wake up, wake me up because I got to get in the office. I got to meet with some more athletes and I got to make some more calls. What had happened was I didn't realize that that night at dinner, Dana had dinner with the chancellor of Arkansas. And the chancellor basically is the one that talked him out of it. Really? Uh, yeah, the chancellor was, Dana had asked him why. Uh, this is after the press conference. This was after the press conference. Understand the AD, is it Dooley? I can't remember his name, but he was a member at Augusta. So as soon as they had the press conference. Oh, Broyles, right? Frank Broyles. Yeah. He flew from Arkansas after the press conference to the Masters. <laughs> okay. So Dana had dinner, not with Frank Broyles, but with the chancellor and his wife. And he was asking the chancellor about the chance. Why are you at Arkansas and so forth? And the chancellor basically said, I grew up in Arkansas. I went to Ohio State for a while as vice chancellor. We came back because... My family's here, my wife's family's in this area. They're both not in real good health. You don't know what it's worth to spend, you know, part of your, your career around your, your parents in the last years of their life. Well, Dana's mom was having real health issues. Dana's father-in-law was having real health issues. And they looked at each other and said, you know, basically, what are we doing? Did the chancellor know he was talking no, out of it? No, So Dana left that dinner and started walking around he's trying to call me well my cell phone's dead so he calls my cell phone it clicks off so he thinks i'm just mad at him and not answering the call 
and he can't call my office phone because I'm on the phone all the time. So I charged my phone when I got up at 6 in the morning. There were like 10 calls from Dana. Really? Basically every hour from like 10 at night till 5 in the morning. He says, we need to talk. So uh, uh, anyway, uh, I never got to the point where I made any calls at that time. There are so many what-ifs from that whole process. You know, I mean... I was talking to one of your former players. I was talking to Dan Colder about this a week ago, and we were laying out all the what-if scenarios. You know, Doug McDermott is at Northern Iowa, yeah. and, uh, yeah. you know, who, who knows what happens to Creighton basketball with conference realignment. Yeah. Uh, it, it was – I don't know if you go to that place in terms of what-if, but, but, man, the, the stars really – I don't want to say they lined up because you lost a great coach, yeah. but – but it, it's fascinating to see how it all sh- shook out. Well, Dana was a guy that his greatest strength is that he finds a way. And I think he maximized what he has. But he realized when he came back from Arkansas, people say we didn't coach the same. Yeah, Dana, Dana's coached the same pretty much every year. Uh, but he tried to upgrade our talent. And in upgrading our talent, we made a couple character mistakes. And basketball's fragile. And so, you know, and I think Dana was at a point where there were people that were disappointed here, and he takes that really personally. So, but, and so I, you know, I think Dana felt like he was doing Omaha a favor by leaving. Uh, But it worked out for him, and it's worked out well for us. But I think a lot of times in your life, you look back and you don't realize it at the time, but you look back and you say, you know, maybe there was another hand in this, and I can go through a lot of things in my career. And I turned down the Creighton women's basketball job the year before I came here. I turned down the AD job here twice before I took it. Uh, But, you know, there's a verse in Isaiah that says, whether you turn to the right or left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the path, walk in it. And I think sometimes you look back and you don't realize it at the time because, you know, sometimes people have to yell at you to get you to pay attention. But I think that there was always that little ear, that little whisper that said, you know, this is the direction to go. And uh, so, you know, you think even, even let's go back to before we hired Dana the first time. I tried to get our president to make a coaching change the year before. It was obvious to me that Rick Johnson wasn't the, the right person for the job. Rick's a good guy, but he wasn't the right person for the job. And I was the assistant AD, and I went to the president and said, we need to make a change. And he said, no. He said, we're not paying somebody two years not to coach. We don't have that kind of money. Uh, so had it happened at that time, we wouldn't have gotten Dana. It happened because the president said no the year before. And uh, the things just aligned. Just like I wouldn't have given Dana a call necessarily had I not placed a girl down in Moberly that didn't work out for us and I was upset for a long time. Yeah, you know? we'll, we'll get into that. Uh, go, go ahead. I, but uh, so, you know, you look back and say, uh, you know, sometimes it's just more than coincidence that things happen. So it, it worked out. It worked out with Coach Mack. Uh, so, you know, a lot of times... You have to get lucky, uh, and we got lucky in the recruiting process with some kids who are the cornerstone, I think, of Dana getting a turn around. 
got lucky with Ryan Sears. We got lucky with Ben Walker. We got lucky with Rodney Buford. Uh, uh, and, and then, you know, we got lucky with Coach Mack and Duck. If we'd have waited another couple months, we couldn't have gotten Doug. Yeah. So anyway, we've been, I, you can call it luck. We certainly have been fortunate. We have been lucky. And yet, you know, there's a part of you that says, you know, maybe it was more than luck too. Yeah. You're from, uh, you're, let's go all the way back to the start. You're, you're from Webster City, Iowa, which is, I don't remember driving through it. Perhaps I have at some point. <laughs> you haven't. <laughs> uh, this is about a half hour north of Ames. Uh, yeah. Tell me about Webster City, Iowa, because you didn't have a real glamorous upbringing. No, I we Webster City has the wrong side of the tracks, and we grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. Uh, uh, the grade school I went to, uh, I think there were only three kids from my sixth grade class that graduated from high school, let alone that went to college. Uh, my my grandpa went blind at age twenty. Uh, in he was married and my grandma was pregnant with twins. One of them was my dad. There weren't lawsuits in that age. It was in the 20s. My dad quit school early to go to work to support not only my grandma and grandpa, but his family. Uh, so uh, we didn't have a lot. My dad traveled. Uh, he'd leave on Monday and come back on Fridays. And on weekends, he'd help build houses. Uh, so my dad was rarely around. My grandpa was in some ways my uh, my mentor uh, but so I didn't realize it but so was my dad because his work ethic you know was off the charts uh, but uh, so we didn't have a lot of money and uh, you didn't have a TV we didn't have a TV you didn't have an indoor bathroom no not when I not when I was little we moved into a house my dad built and we did but uh, uh, but you know what in a lot of ways, I had more money then than I did now because to me, wealth is do you have the ability to do what you want to do? And I always had the ability to do what I want to do because I had from a young age, I, I mowed lawns, so I had a lawn mowing route. I shoveled sidewalks, I had a, a snow shoveling route. And in Webster City, Iowa, we got a lot more snow than we do here. Uh, but I, uh, I uh, had a newspaper route. I had, I worked, I uh, was a carry out when I was old enough at the grocery store. Uh, I worked at a, a store downtown. I, I quit a lot of sports because I had to make money. I had to pay my own way through college. But even in middle school and high school, I had to buy my own lunch tickets. I had to buy my own clothes. Uh, but, uh, you know, I never thought we weren't well off. I had great friends, uh, and you develop a work ethic uh, that I, I don't think I would have had had we not grown up in that type of a situation. What was it like having a closer relationship with your grandfather than your father? And because your dad was kind of hard on you, right? Yeah, he was. He was military. I mean, you know, if. But again, attention to detail. When you look back, I didn't have a great enough appreciation of my dad. There's a difference for most people between fatherly love and grandfatherly love. Fatherly love has discipline uh, that comes with it. Where grandfatherly love, you don't have the discipline. So you can tell your grandfather pretty much everything without a fear of discipline where my dad would come home 
on Friday night and my mom, there were five of us kids in five years, but my mom would have a list of things that we had done wrong and my dad would take care of it. But, uh, you know, it took me until I got older to understand really the impact that my dad had on my life in terms of not only work ethic, but attention to detail. Uh, you know, if you mowed the lawn and there was a couple blades of grass that were out of place, you went, you had to mow the lawn again. You washed the car and if there was a spot on the car, because he traveled, he'd come home, one of my chores on Saturday was wash his car. I mean, he'd look at it, I'd, I'd think, well, why, what's the big deal about this spot? You're gonna drive, it's gonna get dirty. But that wasn't the point. So, you know, I learned a lot more from my, from my dad than I realized, uh, but uh, really, the, the strongest mentor in my life was my grandfather. Huh. Uh, how'd you get into sports? I played sports. It was sort of like a Justin Patton uh, in that, uh, you know, with your free time, what do you do? And back in those days, there weren't select teams. You know, you didn't have the organization that you have today. I, I grew up a block from the county fairgrounds. We had a great big piece of property where you could play baseball, you could play football, you know. Uh, we lived about a block from the elementary school where you'd go and shovel off the, the pavement to play basketball. And we would, no matter how many people were around, you'd make up a game. I mean, you didn't have television those days. You know, we didn't. Didn't have uh, air conditioning. A lot of people yeah, didn't have air conditioning. we didn't either, no. Uh, but uh, so you were outside a lot, so you made up games. If there were if there were four of you, you'd make up a baseball game, you know, where you'd play one batter and, and one field, or you'd play 500, and with football, you might play three on three. But uh, the impact that sports had on me, I knew by the, and the coaches that I had, I knew that by the time I was a freshman or sophomore in high school, I wanted to teach and coach. The influence and the impact that my teachers and my coaches had on me. What was, I've asked this question to a couple other people uh, in various forms. What, what was the most important day of your childhood? You know, I, I, I have no idea. Uh, I don't. Uh, I just, when I look back, I'm, I'm amazed. I, uh, I never went to the sixth grade. <coughs> In my school, uh, third and fourth grades were together, fifth and sixth grades were together. It's kind of like a rural school in yeah, a way. Yeah, I grew up the same way. And so when I went to fifth grade, I went from fifth grade to seventh grade because the teacher just said, okay, you do this stuff and you went on. So I was young for my grade in school and uh, maturity didn't hit me real hard either. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, you think about the impact that my friends had and had I been back a grade, I'd have had a completely different group of friends. Yeah. But, you know, I've got one of my best friends was a U.S. ambassador to France, uh, was under Secretary of State under Kissinger and Madeleine Albright. And from Webster my, City, from Iowa? From Webster City. One of my best friends uh, is worth, he's the largest donor at uh, Iowa State, Richard Stark. He's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And one of my best friends was uh, a uh, overseas. He was a, basically a missionary and spent a lot of years in China. And you look back and you say, none of them would have been my friends had I been in the grade that I was in. So, you know, again, you think, is that just coincidence? Hmm. But uh, you go to Northern Iowa. Um, 
and you get your degree, you get out of there in 71. Uh, what, what was, did you have a college experience that was, uh, that prepared you for adulthood or not? <laughs> no, I, I had to work all the time. So uh, uh, I went to junior college for two years uh, because I, that's what I could afford. And then I went to Northern Iowa. And at that time, you know, it was, at one time, it was Iowa State Teachers College, then it was State College of Iowa and the University of Northern Iowa, but it was known for putting out teachers. Uh, and, you know, between uh, work and, uh, and going to school, and then I was, I set up my classes, so I was in the gym every afternoon playing pickup basketball. But uh, uh, the, probably, I, I got a very good education there. It was a different education than a Creighton. Uh, but uh, uh, I can't remember what year it was, but it was while I was at Northern Iowa. They uh, had the lottery for the draft for the Vietnam War. Uh, they couldn't get enough volunteers to cover the war, so they had the, the drawing for the lottery. That was probably the most important day at Northern Iowa because I'm, I think there was probably the most drinking that there ever had been in the history of Northern Iowa because that night where they had the drawing for the lottery, people were drinking because they got a real low number and they were knew they were going. People were drinking because they got a real high number and they knew they weren't going or people were drinking because they were in the middle and they had no idea. But uh, my number was 151 and at the time they were taking 225 or so to 250 and when I graduated, I, I you know, you had a, a educational uh, deferment, but when I graduated, then I had to go take my physical. Took my physical in June, and I was the next person in our county to go. They never called another person from our county. So every month, at the end of the month, they would let you know whether or not you were getting called up. So when I went to interview for jobs, most of the teaching slash coaching jobs I interviewed for they wouldn't take me because they really didn't think I would last till the end of the year. They thought I would get drafted. Really? Yeah. So I ended up in Murray, Iowa. And Murray is about the size of this room. But uh, uh, Murray, I don't think they'd heard of the draft. They never asked me what my draft status was. They, made, they just needed a teacher. They needed huh? a teacher and a coach. I taught every math class from grade 7 through grade 12. Assistant football coach, junior high football coach, assistant boys basketball, junior high boys basketball, junior varsity boys basketball, boys and girls track coach. And my take home pay was about $250 a month. And I was overpaid. <laughs> but interestingly, I coached about 90 basketball games a year for those two years, which really helped. And my high school, the, the head boys coach had been at Ray, Raytown, Missouri in uh, Missouri, won the state championship at Raytown, but he wanted to be in administration and coaching, and in Missouri they had a rule you couldn't be an administrator if you were a coach, so he moved to Iowa. So I got two great years under an unbelievable basketball coach uh, that, that really helped. Also, just an interesting side note was my volunteer assistant track coach was Bruce Jenner. What? <laughs> Yeah, when are, I was, you, are you kidding? When I was at Murray, Iowa. Bruce Jenner was at Graceland College in Lamoni, Iowa. It's about 15 miles from Murray. And uh, I was the boys and girls track coach. Now, I had run track in high school, but it's hard to believe I wasn't a shot putter or discus thrower or high jumper or pole vaulter or hurdler. 
And so I've got boys and girls track, and I got no idea what to do. And I had no assistant. It was me. No idea what to do with any of those events. So Graceland College had a big indoor track. Uh, it's where they held the Iowa State Indoor Track Championships. And I would go down there on weekends and take all our field event kids down there. And Bruce Jenner had been there. He was recruited to go to, to uh, Graceland on a football scholarship. It's from like New Jersey or Connecticut or somewhere in the Northeast. And he hurt his knee in football, so he couldn't play football anymore. So he went to track. And the track coach at uh, Graceland was known for coaching decathletes. And Bruce was just starting to train for the decathlon. He, he went to Olympic trials in 72 and he didn't make it. Um, he did in 76 and, and won the gold medal. Uh, but uh, for two years, he worked with all my field event people. No pay. He did an unbelievable job. Uh, and uh, I, I went to the, I worked the track and field trials in 1976 in Eugene, Oregon, ironically. And uh, I was, I got married in 77. My wife-to-be and I went out to Eugene in 76 in the summer to work the Olympic trials as a result of Bruce Jenner. And I told him we were going to move to Eugene, Oregon in, when we got married in 1977. We were gonna move there because I loved it. We were out there for about a month. And uh, I was gonna move. I resigned from my job in, in Maxwell, Iowa, which is up by Ames, and uh, was gonna go out there. We were gonna have our honeymoon out west and then go to Eugene and try to find jobs. And the week before I got married, I got offered a job in the Quad Cities, so I stayed. But ironically, the place I was going to go is Eugene, and now Dana's there. Just just another side story. So what was Bruce Jenner, uh, I mean, did you have any, did you have a relationship with him? Yeah, for, for a number of years, uh, through 76, he helped me get the job at the Olympic trials in 76. Another just side story, interestingly, my job was to check athletes into the dorms, and this was at an age where. Why did you go out there? Like what? Because I told Bruce I'd love to watch okay. the track and field trials because I thought he had a chance of, of making the Olympic team, but I wasn't making a lot of money. And I said I'd love to go. I don't know if I can afford. It. He says, "Well, call so and so." He gave me an address. Said they need they need workers, so I got my room and board paid. I didn't get any pay, but I got my room and board paid. And so we, my wife and I drove out there. She wasn't my wife at the time, she's my fiance, but we drove out there and uh, uh, spent, you know, about three, a little bit over three weeks. But the guy who sat next to me, Phil Knight. What? Yeah, Nike was trying to get going at the time, so I <laughs> checked kids in the dorms. He sat next to me, kids, the athletes, and, uh, you know, their big uh, Nikes, the face of Nike was Steve Prefontaine, yeah. who had died that spring in a car wreck. But Nike was just getting up and getting going. The only thing they had at that time was running shoes, track shoes. They didn't have basketball shoes, they didn't have uniforms, they didn't have anything. And he would hand out shoes to the U.S. Olympic candidates. They'd put them in a bag and they'd wear their Adidas and Pumas, and I'm going, this company will never make it. Never make it. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I sat next to Phil Knight for 
over two weeks. And I'm thinking, you know. Bruce, you could have been the assistant. You could have I, been the CFO I, at Nike. I, I could have been retired if I had just bought stock. And, <laughs> and I'm the opposite. I'm saying there's no way this company will make it. And if you see the shoes, first, they weren't doing any national marketing. He's basically pulling shoes out of the trunk of his car. Uh, but if you saw the shoes, they were, they were crappy. They had a green and yellow for Oregon, an orange and black for Oregon State, and a red, white, and blue. And if you see the shoes at that time, you wonder, you know why nobody wore them. Did they have the swoosh? They had the swoosh, and then they had what they called the waffle on the bottom, which was the, the new thing because there hadn't been all-weather tracks. They'd all been cinder. So this new waffle shoe allowed you to get traction on an all-weather track without having spikes. Huh. That was the selling point. So you, you come back to Bettendorf, Iowa, yeah. and you coach there for three years. Yeah. Um, and how the heck do you hear about Creighton and get a phone call from Creighton three years later? Well, I got a – first of all, I, I ran a – I was coaching girls basketball over there, and the reality was we were drawing about 3,000, 3,500 people a game to our high school games for girls. Uh, I mean, a monkey could have coached them to the, basically the same record that I coached them to. But uh, Bob Hansen and Sharon Hansen, Bob Hansen was my wife's high school coach, but Bob was coaching at Des Moines East and his wife was his assistant. They were good friends of ours. Uh, I had a team camp in the summer where I'd invite the best high school teams from Iowa together. They'd come over and our, the parents of my team would host them and we'd have a camp for a week, and it was better than the state tournament. We had the top so many teams in the state. Dan Offenberger was the um, associate AD over here. Tom Apke was the athletic director. Dan was the assistant athletic director. They decided to add women's basketball. And they came over and interviewed Bob and Sharon to be the head coach. Uh, Dan grew up in Iowa, so you know Bob and Sharon had won the state championship at Des Moines East. Uh, they'd have been a great choice, okay? They turned it down because they didn't have an assistant job. He only had a head job. It paid $18,000, Yeah. okay? Uh, no scholarships. And Bob and Dan came to Bettendorf to interview him. But all the better coaches in the state were at, at Bettendorf, so he could come over and basically interview two or three people. Bob and Sharon turned him down but said, you need to interview Bruce. So he interviewed me, and he offered me the job, and I turned it down. It was late July, and I said, it's not the right way to do business. You're only like 27 or something yeah, like I was, that? Yeah, I was like 27, 28, uh, but uh, I was making almost twice as much money at Bettendorf High School as here. Really? And, and, uh, and, but anyway, it wasn't the money. It was the fact that it was July, late July, and I didn't think that was the right way to do business, to tell, you know. You're going to leave your high school in late Two or July. three weeks yeah. before school started. So I said no. And then, uh, uh, what was it? After we played, that was in late July, early August, we played in the state tournament the next year, again against uh, Des Moines East, uh, and uh, they beat us. Uh, but uh, Dan came again in March then and offered me the job again. And I said, well, I'll come over for an interview because I'd never been on Creighton's campus. I'd never stopped in Omaha. I'd driven through Omaha to go to Colorado. But I came over and interviewed, and I called my wife uh, after I got over here in the afternoon. They were having some interviews. 
that afternoon and a dinner that night. Then they were going to have a meeting in the morning, and then I was going to leave. And I called my wife that night and said, uh, you know, it was interesting. You know, at some point it'd be interesting to coach at the college level. I would have rather, I thought, if I could get in on the women's side, maybe I could move over to the men's, which shows you how ignorant I was. But anyway, I called my wife and said, I'm not, it was nice, but I'm not taking the job. Okay. So the next morning, I'm walking uh, across campus. I had, they stayed overnight in the law school apartments. I'm walking up to the administration building, and three or four people I'd seen the day before, I saw again on campus, and I'm go up to the administration building and Dan Offenberger said, well, we're going to offer you, we're offering you the job. And I had intended to say no and yes came out. (laughs) Why? I have no idea. So when I get back to Bettendorf, I tell my wife I took the job and she said, why? And I said, I have no idea why. It just, yes came out. Uh, Now come on. Is that really what you told her? Yeah. And uh, it was, my wife had just graduated from St. Ambrose. So she had a teaching job in the Quad Cities. I was going to make between thirty-five and forty thousand dollars. My wife is going to make twenty some. So between the two of us, we were going to at that time. That was you know nineteen eighty. We were gonna, it was a decent. Came over here. They said, well, they can help my wife get a teaching job. I came over here for eighteen thousand dollars. I taught in the exercise science department. I had no assistance. We had no scholarships. We weren't. We were awful. Don't and, hey don't use a a, a we pronoun here. This yeah. is this is this is I. And then uh, and then they didn't get my wife a job. So we had eighteen thousand dollars, and we were everybody's homecoming that year. We. Uh, what, what was the first year of Creighton women's basketball? Well, they played a year or two before that, and uh, but they just played local. I okay. mean, they played like Doan and and Hastings, and uh, but. Uh, Basically, that coach, uh, if it was somebody's birthday, they missed. They they didn't go to practice. I mean, he was. Yeah. It was run like an intramural program. What was women's basketball like in the late seventies? I mean, this. You, what's really interesting about this is is your tra- you transitioned from from boys basketball in Iowa high school to girls basketball yeah. at a time when what is the state of Iowa girls basketball like? Well, at that time, they were still playing the six on six game. Uh, and I coached it like you would coach boys. I made my players play both ends. So, you know, I would move people from the defensive end, the offensive, or back. Uh, we did all boys' basketball drills. We do three-on-two full court and so forth. So I was, a, I guess, non-conventional as a girls' coach because the six-on-six game was a strange game. It, it did a great job to develop talent. I think they ought to do more three-on-three now at all levels to develop talent. But... Uh, but uh, uh, it was a big deal in Iowa. I mean, you know, we we draw full houses. The state tournament draw fourteen thousand a session. It was on it was on national TV. Uh, a lot of the better college basketball players came through Iowa, or Tennessee, or Oklahoma, which all had six on six. Uh, and the college game was it, there was no NCAA women's basketball, it was AIAW. Yeah. And you see what was JFK and in, uh, in, uh, Wahoo. Uh, uh, there was a pl- down in Southeast Iowa. Uh, I can't remember the name of the, the school now, but 
some of the better programs were from smaller schools. JFK was uh, one of the national powers in basketball. Uh, so it was a different time. And then Title IX came in. Uh, and Title IX, when it first came in, didn't have a lot of impact. But that's why Nebraska added basketball. That's why the NCAA went to basketball. But it started having teeth when you could sue uh, a school for not providing some equal opportunities. So it was a time of tremendous growth. And volleyball wasn't a big sport. Soccer wasn't a big sport. So really, basketball was the sport on the girls' side. Uh, now I think basketball's leveled off some because so many kids go into volleyball or into soccer instead of into basketball. But uh, there was tremendous growth at that time. And uh, there was what I would call more of a level playing field uh, where you had some schools that were good. There were a lot of schools across the country that, uh, of not just from the you know, power five schools, but you saw smaller schools that had been ahead of their time making a commitment to basketball. Drake was a national power, for instance, at that time. So it was a good time in basketball. Uh, there were, it was unique from the standpoint that schools hired their officials. So when you went on the road, uh, you didn't really get a real fair shake. <laughs> we were an independent, so like my first couple of years at Creighton, if we played 30 games, 20-some of them were on the road. And we went from, Dan Offenberger told me, if you come over here the first year, you're going to have zero scholarships, then you go to two, then you'll go to four, then you'll go to six. And you, you could have 15 at the time. When I quit coaching in 92, we went from eight to 10 scholarships. So we, we typically had half of what most teams did. But, but I got fortunate in that, you know, I recruited Connie Yori to come here. Connie was one of the top five or six players in the country. In yeah, yeah, you might want to elaborate on how that happened a little bit. Well, back then there wasn't uh, the rules that you have now in terms of how many times you can be at a high school game or watch a recruit. When Connie was a junior, well, first of all, when I was at Maxwell, which is about 10 miles from Ankeny. She's from Ankeny. She's from Ankeny. I'm at Maxwell, and I saw her as a seventh grader take two dribbles from half court, go up and grab the rim. And Come I'm thinking, on. No, unbelievable. She could go up and grab the rim with both hands. In seventh grade? Seventh grade. Now, she's about the same height as she is, 5'10", 5'11", but, I mean, strong. And I'm going, there's no way. Back then, Iowa wasn't, they didn't have classes. You all played the same. I said, I got to get out of here. So I, I moved to Bettendorf partly to get away from her. But Are you serious? No, it was, I mean, I was going to go to Oregon. But, you know, I, would, I told her coach that's why. I, I wasn't going to stay at Maxwell. We were going to get our butts beat all the time. And Connie's two older sisters were good basketball players. Mary, who came here and played softball, was a first-team All-State basketball player. But anyway, I saw 18 of Connie's games when she was a junior and probably 18 or 20 when she was a senior, and I think it was just hard for her to tell me no. But because she came here, then the next year I got Tanya Warren, who was also an All-American from, from uh, Iowa, and Pam Gradeville here from Omaha, Marion. But everybody was recruiting Yori, right? I mean, everybody in the country. Old Dominion was the school, Louisiana Tech, everybody was recruiting her. So that was a big, and Drake was a top 10 program, and it was five miles from her home, basically. But uh, 
yeah, I probably would have been fired here if not for Connie making the decision to come here. But we were able to, as a result of it, put some good kids together. And really, uh, the last couple of years Connie was here, had we stayed healthy, uh, we had a chance to win the national championship. We had six scholarships. Yeah. And in the midst of this, 1983 or 84 uh, is when your Moberly experience. Yeah. Uh, you've told me that before, but but share that because that's a that's a great story. Well, yeah, I'd, I was up in uh, Milwaukee recruiting and Wisconsin had a big camp up in uh, up closer to Green Bay that really all the kids in in uh, Wisconsin and Minnesota a lot of the better players went to but I stopped and watched a couple games in inner city Milwaukee and they weren't at that time colleges weren't recruiting the inner city Milwaukee uh, same area Rodney came from and I saw a girl named Jackie Glosson who goaltended in a game about 5'11", jump out of the gym. She looked like she could bench press the building. <laughs> and uh, so I talked Jackie into signing a letter of intent here. Uh, she had good grades in high school. But when she came here, this was a couple years after Kevin Ross at Creighton, uh, which we and didn't I, uh, get a lot of great publicity as a result of that. And Father Morrison was our new president. And he'd been through the Kevin Ross era, and he said, okay, she's got to take the ACT. She took it while she was here. She was on campus. We were having orientation, and then classes were going to start like on Wednesday, and she was here on the weekend. She took the ACT, and her score wasn't good enough. And Father said, we're not admitting her. This is, Kevin Ross was an academic scandal that yes, it was. kind of stained yeah. Creighton's reputation. Yep. And so Father didn't want another Kevin Ross. I didn't have enough money in the bank with father and uh, I didn't have the ability to dissuade him from not admitting her. So I called down to Moberly and placed her down there uh, with the idea I'd get her back and I went to Moberly for two years and watched her play. And uh, and that's where I crossed paths with Dana. Who was at Fairbury at the time. That's exactly right. And they were playing Moberly and uh, this guy from uh, from Nebraska who looked like he was 15 years old. <laughs> he was skinny, had long hair, uh, but uh, he coached his tail off. And uh, it was, uh, you know, went in the memory bank. So, And, and the, the, the postscript to the Jackie Glosson story is that? Well, Jackie was not only going to come here, but she had a, uh, a teammate named uh, Jackie Schultz, I think. Maybe, maybe it wasn't Jackie Schultz, but Schultz. And uh, they were both committed to come here. They would have played with Yori, Warren, and Gradaville. Uh, and the week before signing, the JUCO coach at Moberly, who Moberly won the national championship, Jackie was the MVP of the national tournament, he got the Oklahoma State job. And uh, they went with him to Oklahoma State. So the week before signing, I think I'm getting two JUCO All-Americans, and I end up with no one. Uh, but uh, And Jackie know, became first-team All-Big 8. Uh, and first team academic all big eight. Uh, <laughs> Ouch. Which hurt. But, you know, we played Oklahoma State twice when Jackie was there. Both years Jackie was at Oklahoma State. We beat them both years. Uh, and then Jackie went overseas and played. And uh, I stayed in contact with her for a long time. We talked about what ifs, you know. But The, the pinnacle, you really got it going. Um, 
Yori's era was great, and then there was a little bit of a lull, and then you yeah. got it going again with with Kathy Halligan's group. Yeah. And in 1992, you make the first NCAA tournament for Creighton. Uh, you win the conference championship. You're playing in the WAC at the time, right? Well, it, it was called the uh, High Country, uh, but it was what it was the forerunner of the Mountain West. I mean, okay. it was the Mountain West uh, schools, uh, but it was. Air Force had Division II women's athletics, and Hawaii at the time was in that conference, and they didn't—they weren't in the league in women's, so they needed a, an affiliate member, and we were—we were an affiliate member. But you had an incredible team. You went twenty-seven and three, I think, in the regular season uh, yeah. through the tournament, and and you hosted an NCAA tournament game at the Civic. Yeah. Uh, you beat Long Beach State. Yeah. And. Then you played Stephen F. Austin, who was the number four team in the country, yep. and you lost on a last-second shot. Yep. The last-second shot at, at Stephen F. Austin, their coach, we, we went ahead with like eight or nine seconds left. Okay, We, we hit a couple free throws, so we're up one. They called timeout. We have a three-quarter court press. And uh, he told his players, listen, you drive it all the way, run them over. They're not going to call a charge on you at home. They'll call a foul or, and get a shot. So they get down to about the top of the circle. They run over two of our players. There's no call. She throws up a ball. It's an air ball, but they have a player right underneath the basket, gets it and puts it up at the buzzer to beat us. Uh, but anyway. Um, you, you were – one thing that I, I found interesting looking back uh, – you were really hard nosed. Uh, this is this. Melissa Sanford was quoted. This would have been early '90s, I think, right? Late '80s. Quote: we, We've had our share of disagreements. He's kicked me out of practice a few times. When he's mad, he yells and he gets all red. His glasses start flying <laughs> off. His glasses start to fly off his face. You were. I, it's it's fascinating. I talked to John Cook, who was a you know he he was coming up in volleyball yeah. at a time when there were not a lot of. You know, not a lot of great volleyball players, and, and he was. He said he 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 coached so hard that too hard. You know, I mean, yeah. he they were crying. You know, he was kicking girls yeah. out of practice. They're yeah. crying. Sounds like you had a little bit of that too. Well, there's no question. I probably and and uh, Melissa probably was kind, uh, but uh, you had you had why why do you win games? Okay, it, what causes you as a team to win? Uh, it could be you have better talent. could be you're a smarter coach. I thought we had to win based on toughness, especially when you only have six or seven or eight scholarship players, and usually on the women's side you had one or two that were hurt. So how are you going to win games? There has to be something that sets you apart. And for me, it was our players were tougher than others. How do you make them tough? by what you do in practice. We did things in practice, and sometimes it isn't. You know, a lot of coaches run the same drills, but it's not what you run, it's what you expect. And, you know, my goal every year for our players was the same, and that wasn't that we won 20 games or we made the NCAA tournament. My goal was that on every possession we're on offense, we score. And every (laughs) time we're on defense, we stop them. And that's the way we ran practice. We ran a lot of practices. I had a male practice team. Jim Flannery was one of them. Really? Uh, yeah. Uh, Flann was a, a student who came in every day. We used a lot of the baseball players at that time. Jim Hendry was the baseball coach. And he had some 
all-state basketball players uh, that were playing baseball. And we were in the old gym at that time, and uh, the batting cages were at the end. Uh, and Tony Baroni, when Tony was here, wouldn't let Jim use the cages while they practiced. I would let Jim use the cages while they practiced if he'd let me use some of his guys. <laughs> but I'd tell him, don't take it easy on the players either. You know, try to kick their tails. But we'd run a lot of three on offense against four defense or, you know, the opposite. When you're on defense, three on defense against four offense, and you had to stop them three times in a row if you're on defense to get out of the drill. We might run the same drill for an hour. You know, uh, <laughs> they, but, hate, they hated you. Yeah, they did. But uh, how do you develop toughness? You can't just say, well, we're going to be tougher, and, but there's got to be something you do that makes you tougher. And when you look back, I have an unbelievable amount of respect for those kids because they were tougher than anybody else. We didn't out-coach them. We did not recruit them. But we were tougher than anybody we played. And that, it was because of what they put up with yeah. in practice. That goes back to your dad and your grandpa, I would imagine. Um, you liked the coachability of, of women. Yeah. More than, more than men. You knew it even then. Yeah, and it was, you know, with boys, and it, whenever you make statements, when you make generalizations, there's always exceptions. Okay, the toughest basketball player I ever coached kind of yours. Without question, without question. But with the boys, when I coached at the high school level, a lot of them thought they knew it before they knew it. You know, what are you telling me about putting my elbow in? Or what are you telling me about my footwork? You know, I've done it this way. Uh, and while there were a lot of things I loved about coaching guys, I mean, they could fight each other. And as soon as they left the locker room, it was over. Where with girls, they'd remember things for two years. But they were so receptive to coaching. It's like it is. Sometimes we take the, what I say, privilege of being on a team, and we, we forget that privilege. I have to lift weights, I have to practice, we have to run sprints, we have to do this drill. Let's just play. And you lose that joy that comes with just being able to, to participate on a team and to compete. Where with the girls, at least when I coached them, for the most part, they never lost that joy of, hey, somebody's coaching us, somebody's spending time with us, we get to practice, we get to lift weights, we get to play. And I think even to this day, we have so many kids that it's an entitlement and they, they take the privilege and the joy of playing out of it. They play too much. I mean, I think that's yeah. part of it. Yeah, I, I would agree. And they play not only too much, but they don't have off seasons where they play other things. And so you, you see overuse physically, but overuse mentally also. Uh, that Stephen F. Austin buzzer beater was the last, last game you ever coached. Yeah. Um, a month later, you got out and you got into administration. Why did you do that? Well, I didn't want, the reality was I had made the commitment in October that it would be my last season. Oh, really? Because we had had, Don Leahy was the athletic director at Creighton for a number of my years, and Don Leahy is a coach's AD. I mean, a lot of what I do as an athletic director was based on my mentor in, in administration, Don Leahy. But when Don left, and Don kind of got forced to leave because Creighton, the NCAA and Division One was going through a grow, growth period where, you know, when I came to Creighton, we had like 
eight sports, and most of them were you pulled kids out of the hallway. I mean, we were playing men's basketball, we were playing baseball, and on the women's side, we were playing softball. You kind of had to decide we're either going to ante up yes. or we're going to go back to NAIA or Division And there was two. a real resistance on campus to the growing expense of Division One athletics, and Don got caught in that. And, and uh, you know, he did everything he could for us, but we added, you know, we went from 8 to 10 to 12 to 14 sports, and the university was saying it's becoming too expensive, we're not generating enough money. And uh, Don knew what we needed and fought for it, but he lost a lot of those battles. So Don left, and they brought in an athletic director. His name was Dick Myers. And Dick was hired. He had no college background. He'd worked for the Redskins for a while. But Dick was on a panel that had gone to Wichita State and recommended Wichita State that they drop football. And Wichita State's rude that day, but that was the recommendation. So we hire him because he's a cost-cutting guy. So Dick comes in, and for the next 18 months, all we do is cut expenses. And uh, Dick got fired, uh, and then they brought in, they basically came, they went to Jim Hendry and said, Jim, would you be the athletic director? And Jim would have been a great choice, but Jim wanted to continue to coach baseball, and they wouldn't let him be a coach and an AD, so he said no. So they came to me and said, would you be interested in being an athletic director, being the athletic director? And we had, I knew we were gonna be really good if we could stay healthy. And I'd finally got us going a little bit and we'd got, we were gonna have 10 scholarships the next year. God, I could have enough depth where, you know, we could do some things. And I, I had a part-time assistant coach. And, uh, but uh, my fear was at about the same time Creighton had looked at, we had a study on campus to, do we stay Division One? Do we drop to Division Two? Do we drop to Division Three? And while the consensus was that we would stay Division One, we were close to moving to Division Three. Uh, the feeling was Division Two has most of the same expenses, but nowhere near the same recognition. So, you know, my fear was as a white male coaching women's basketball that if we drop down, I'm out of a job or the other part of it was at that time there were I saw some of my good coaching friends lose their jobs because two or three girls went to the administration and said this white male head coach is too tough on me and I was a tough coach so I made the commitment in October that when the basketball season was over I would be the assistant AD with the idea that uh, Tom Moore who was the athletic director they brought him out of retirement Tom was a banker and an attorney in Omaha, but he would teach me the finance part of the business and the compliance part of the business. And if I didn't mess up, you know, 18 months later, I would be the athletic director. So not only I had committed in October and then the Iowa State job opened, which was close to my hometown, uh, close to my wife's hometown, and uh, uh, they were paying a lot of money uh, and the head of the committee was one of my good friends in high school who's the biggest donor at Iowa State. So you could have had the job. I could have had the job. I was offered the job, and I turned it down, but I said, you need to call, you need to contact Bill Finley, uh, and Bill got the job. Now, I probably would have got fired. Bill's done a great job there. Uh, but now, come on. Why, why, why didn't you take the job? Because I'd made the commitment to, to be the athletic director here, and I just thought, 
it was my word. I mean, uh, a lot of a lot of me wanted to take the basketball job, but uh, uh, I just. I was worried about what was going to happen to Creighton Athletics. If you look back, that was a real critical time for us. Uh, we were losing fans in basketball. Hendry had left in baseball. Uh, it was there was a real chance that we would be Division Three. And I thought I could do more for women's basketball as the AD than I could as the coach because I'd ask for full-time assistance. I'd ask for more scholarships kept getting no. I thought, I can have more of an impact on women's basketball as the athletic director than I can as a coach. And I made Connie Yori the basketball coach, and Connie was a better coach than me. Connie, it bothers me to this day that, uh, that uh, the Nebraska made the decision they made with Connie. She's really, really talented. Um, we need more Connie Yori's coaching, not less Connie, fewer Connie Yori's coaching. Was she like, I mean, she was like you in terms of her expectations. Connie was a tough coach, uh, but very intelligent, knew the game, was going to find a way, uh, passionate, high character. And the reality is Connie was a lot tougher here as a basketball coach on our players than she was at Nebraska. Really? And I never saw her cross the line, ever. So, um, the Altman story is pretty, you know, it's, it's pretty well documented. We just did a story about it a couple weeks ago. Um, but... What were the challenges? You, you you always talked about how you never considered yourself necessarily a great fit for the AD job. You, yeah. you, you thought that your talents were better, uh, you know, better suited for the coaching box than the AD chair. Uh, how did you? How did that evolve over time? And when did you start to get comfortable? Well, I would. I think maybe even today I'd be a better coach than AD. It's just that I probably would have gotten fired. Uh, you know, you'd like to think that you would change with the times because kids are different. You'd like to think you'd change, but uh, you know, as a as a athletic director, I think that there are there are advantages. I mean, athletics today is so much of a business. You're more of a CEO, and you better have a business background. You better have the ability to raise money. But I think that the perspective of having played sport, having coached sport, especially the sport of basketball, and having to, at a lot of the places I was at, you, we didn't have the best talent. You had to find ways. You had to prioritize. There was a style and a culture you had to develop to be successful. And that's what I saw in Dana. You know, And a lot of it goes back to his junior college background, where he had to find a way. and. Uh, he had to be a great teacher, he had to be intense, he had to develop a toughness, but he had to care about his kids. And I think even when I coached, the thing that saved me was I think the kids could see off the basketball court I was okay. They thought I was a jerk in practice, but off the basketball court, you know, when we went to games, we didn't fly, we didn't take a bus, we drove a van, and those kids are in the van with me. Did you drive all over the the Wack Mountain West, whatever well, you want to call when it. When we got to the Wack, uh, we drove to Wyoming and Colorado State. Oh man! Uh, but we flew to uh, Utah and BYU, and we flew to San Diego and uh, New Mexico. But we drove to Col uh, Wyoming and Colorado. Okay, State. that's just an aside. Go ahead. Yeah, but uh, but anyway, uh, you know, I just I thought that my job as AD, and this is a Don Leahy trait, was to say, what do you need? 
as a coach, what do you need for your program to get better? And then I'll do everything I can to get it for you. And to be able to filter and say, okay, you know, you want these 10 things, we can't get 10, let's prioritize these and let's see, you know, what you really need. And so I felt my job was to go to coaches and say, okay, how can I help you? How can I serve you? What can I do to, to allow you as a coach and your players individually and as a group to get better? And that's how I administrated. And fundraising is a awkward, uh, it's a necessary part of the job, but it's also awkward because the best way to maximize fundraising is to develop strong relationships. But when you develop those relationships, the concern is that people think that you have a relationship with them simply to ask for money rather than you care about them other than for their money. So it's always been an awkward part of the job. Yeah, very, uh, the risk of insincerity is kind of worries you. Yeah. Um, what's the closest you ever came to leaving? I mean, you've been doing this for 23 years now. Uh, I'm sure you've had opportunities. Yeah, yeah. I, a lot of times I got outvoted one-to-one. Really? <laughs> Yeah, uh, you know, if you have uh, kids, you have to really find a way to balance what you need to do as a husband, what you need to do as a father, what you need to do with your personal life, and what you need to do as a coach or as an administrator. And the reality is, if you're going to be an outstanding coach, sometimes being a parent or a husband has to take a back seat. And if you're going to have any kind of a family, then sometimes uh, being a, a husband or a father has to, you have to, sometimes you have to put the family as a priority, sometimes you have to put the job as a priority. You need to make sure that's balanced, but you better have the right spouse. And my wife's been unbelievable that way. Uh, she understands the, the job. She's been in a lot of ways with my kids, a mother and a father. Uh, uh, I, I haven't been absent as much as my dad was, but still, I've been absent a lot. Uh, so, Does that you know, bother you? Yeah, it does. Yes, it does. You know, I think as people get older, you don't see them, you don't hear many people say, I wish I spent less time with my kids. Uh, but, it, you know, I, hopefully your kids understand and you look at quality time, not quantity time. I've missed a lot of my kids' athletic events. Uh, but. There are pluses to that, too, when you see some of the parents today and how they act towards their kids in sport. But so my wife, in order for me to do what I needed to do here to be successful, my wife had to, in a lot of ways, be a mother and father. She had to have a lot of say in if we were going to go somewhere where we went. And, and in hindsight, when I got outvoted, uh, she was right. Uh, but... Uh, but Creighton's been really good and Omaha's been really good. You know, my grandpa used to say, if the grass always looks greener on the other side of the fence, you're not taking very good care of your yard. You know, your job should be to take the best care of your yard that you can and not worry about what everybody else has. And I mean, he pounded that into us a lot, is don't worry about what these people have, you know, on the other side of the tracks. Do the best job you can with what you have. So that's always been my mentality. I mean. I've lived in the same house for 30 years, 31 years now. Uh, had the same wife, it'll be 40 this year. Been at the same job for a long time, you know. I just, my mentality is 
that I'm going to do the best job with what I can, uh, what I can with what I have. And uh, and Creighton and Omaha, Omaha has been a great place to raise my family. Creighton's been great to me and my family. And and uh, you know, if you think back about the people that have had the most impact on you and your life, if you ask most people, it isn't somebody who's in the spotlight, and often it isn't somebody that's bounced around. It's somebody that's been in the same spot. For a number of years, could be an elementary teacher, could be a middle school coach, could be a high school person, could be a Sunday school teacher, but typically there are people that are not in the spotlight, but they have been faithful, they've been loyal, they've been dedicated, and they've had a, they leave a legacy, a lot of times because of how long they've been somewhere. So I guess that's more the way I'm wired. Hmm. Uh, you operate an apartment that you know competes nationally in, in several sports. One thing that you don't have is a football program. Yeah. Have you have you wondered? Have you? Uh, I'm sure you've wondered what it'd be like to have that you know elephant in the room. Yeah. Well, I've had an opportunity to go to a lot of places, and being on the men's basketball committee, uh, there are a number of of the ads who I really respect, who are great, great at what they do, who have football programs. I just one year I was recruiting a girl out of. Uh, Manhattan, Kansas. Uh, I can't remember her name, but she ended up going to Nebraska. Carol Russell. Her dad was the uh, athletic director at Manhattan High, and I'm in the home visit, and he's asking about Creighton and so forth, and he says, now this was in the 80s. This was pre-Bill Snyder, but he said, you guys don't have a football program, do you? And I said, no, we're a lot like Kansas State. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, she went to Nebraska. But but anyway, there are positives to be in somewhere where there's a football program and there's negatives to be in somewhere where there isn't a football program. And you know, you, hire, you see people that say, well, we won't hire an athletic director at a football school that wasn't at a football school before. But ironically, you know, they may have been at a football school that their basketball was bad. I mean, coaching is coaching and administration is administration to a certain point. So. Uh, I, I don't feel any kind of a vacancy because I haven't been at a football school. What do you, a couple quick hitters, uh, what do you know now that you wish you'd known 20 years ago? Um, well, I think I'd be a lot better coach today than I was when I was here. And a lot of that has to do with having five kids and going through the entire growth process with five kids. Before you have kids, I think one of the things that they should do and it's impossible and it's impractical but you cannot be a coach of high school kids till you've had high school kids of your own (laughs) or or college kids because when I coached I thought you know I'm complete honest and specific I tell you what to do why can't you do it and uh, then you have your own kids and if they do it half the time you think wow this is great you know I I think I'd have been a lot better coach uh, had I had kids of my own that had gone through that stage so you know you wish that I look back at those kids that I coached and I wish that I knew then what I know now I think I could have been a better coach for them and done a better job for them toughest day on the job in 23 years it's always when you have to let somebody go I think the hardest thing is to look a coach in the eye and say we've got to make a change Um, you know I never I never, when I coached here, I coached here for 12 years, I never told a girl that I made a mistake in recruiting her. We never had a kid leave because I said you could play somewhere else. Uh, and 
but I'm with staff, that's hard. And you know, one of my first jobs in, a, in administration was to meet with Rick Johnson and tell him we were going to make a change. Rick Johnson was a good friend of mine. Uh, Jack Dom, our baseball coach, was a good friend of mine. And to look them in the eye and say that, you know, we've got to make a change, you're, you're not getting it done. Uh, that's the hardest thing for me. And in a way, it's, it, I have some culpability in that, you know, because part of your job is to help them. So, but I think anytime you have to tell a player or a coach that you're not good enough to get done what you want to get done, I think that's the hardest thing. You guys brought in Tom Osborne for a couple of years to, to work with yeah. your student athletes and your coaches. What, what did you gain from, what, what insight did you gain from that experience? Well, first, he's the best man I've ever met. You know, what the, the amazing thing to me about Tom is he does not change according to his audience. What you see is what you get. Uh, I don't know of a guy that's got higher character. He's very passionate at what he does. He's very intelligent at what he does. What was amazing to me when he was here and he came over every week and he talked to our athletes and he talked to our coaches. But okay, most of our student athletes when Tom came here had no idea who he was. Really? I mean, most of them were not from Nebraska. They had not played football. He had been a congressman for a number of years. So most of our athletes, they didn't know. I mean. You could tell him who he was, but they didn't know him. But it was amazing in his, with his own personality. You'd think with athletes and staff that they would tune him out. You know, he'd talk to our athletes as a group. And the ability to connect with kids and with people is off the charts. He could walk into a room at 8 o'clock at night when your kids have been in class all day and had athletics. And he could talk in his own way for very an quiet, hour, very quietly, by very the way. quiet, and yet everybody was locked in. Huh. That to me is is an amazing trait. Um, but just the common sense to him, his high character. He talked about you know a lot of the things where we can talk about uh, teamwork, and we can talk about the willingness to play a role. We can talk about leadership, and we can talk about character, but. Uh, you know, he had a way to talk about those things and make it real and uh, give kids examples and our coaches as to how to develop a culture. Uh, so, no, that was, I can't remember how many months it was, but it, it was, it had a great impact not only on me, but on a lot of our staff and a lot of our student athletes. You've expressed concern about basketball development in America. Uh, you've got some theories on how to change that. Why is that a passion for you, and what are, what are your ideas? Well, you know, you hate to say it because you, uh, you know, I, I'm an athletic director over 14 sports, but when, you know, the sport that I had the most love for was basketball, the sport that got me advanced in my profession is basketball. And I've taught and coached basketball at every level from, you know, I volunteered in high school for fourth and fifth graders, then I coached everywhere from seventh grade through college. And uh, so I would like to see our sport grow and develop more than it has. I think we've seen a change in our sport. You know, I think that, for instance, uh, we have monetized the sport to the point where unless there are exceptions, but for the majority, you have to, you have, to have some money to have a chance in the sport. I think that's bad. I mean, you better be on a club team or a select team or an AU team and the costs of that and the influence of that. But, you know, you don't, you don't see as many kids 
that aren't coming up through uh, an AU or a select team anymore, and there's there's a, a, a real significant cost to that. And I'm not just saying that's in basketball. I think in the United States we've monetized about every sport. But we have emphasized the results and the game rather than the process. And, you know, uh, every score is kept on everything, no fundamentals. Score is kept, and you play, if you're on an AAU team, you play 10 games a week and you have one practice, where I think the process is more important than the results. And that's why back when you go back to what my goal was, I tell my kids, you know, perfection is impossible, but it doesn't hurt to try to achieve it. But it doesn't matter whether you reach your goals. It's what's happened to you in your attempt to reach your goals. And if in your attempt to reach your goals, you develop a focus and an appreciation for your teammates and for the game, and you demonstrate a love for the game and for your teammates, and you develop a toughness, then it doesn't matter whether you achieve your goals or not. It's what happens to you in your attempt. But we've become so results-oriented where we've got to play the game. We're going to skip the process to play the game, and I don't, I, I don't like that. So I, I would like to see us go back to, I think it, a lot of sports have done a much better job of making their sport age and skill related more so than basketball. In baseball, you start on a smaller field, you have t-ball, then coach pitch, then slow pitch, and so there is a development in the game. In soccer, you go to from three on three on a small field with no goalie, and you gradually make the field bigger and you add. But in basketball, you see fourth and fifth graders playing five on five. Ten they're not, they're ten, not ready for five on ten five. foot rims. And ten foot rims, and there's full size court. And uh, you know, three on three. When I coached here in the off season, we our, my kids never played five on five. We played three on three. Really. And I think we did a better job of developing. I watch our men's team go up and down the floor for two hours playing pickup. How many times the post touched the ball with his back to the basket? You know, and I just think that you get a lot more repetition in basketball three and three. So I'd like, and part of that is I, I, made, I ridiculed the six on six game until I coached it. <laughs> and then when I coached it, I was also coaching boys and we did more three-on-three stuff with the boys, then I coached uh, the girls on, you know, so, and when I came here, we did almost all our stuff was three-on-three. Now, part of those, we didn't have the numbers. Right. But you see the development of the game. You're either guarding the ball or you're one step It's away. a lot harder to play. But to, to have gyms where you have a smaller court, a shorter basket, a smaller ball, and you're playing three-on-three. And then I think that when you get to maybe middle school, you graduate up just like you do in baseball with t-ball, with slow pitch, like you do in soccer. And we haven't done that in basketball, and yet in other parts of the world they have. If you go to Europe, they practice twice a day and play one game a week. And we play two games a day and we practice once a week. I just don't think that's the way to develop the game. The, the, the biggest challenge of the switch to the Big East and maybe the thing that you uh, miss about being a small-time athletic department? Well, first of all, the biggest, the, the biggest difficulty in the move to the Big East is trying to make sure that we are consistently relevant in all of our sports, but especially men's basketball. I mean, if you're, uh, you know, I was... I was in the Valley when Evansville came in from a smaller conference and they were successful for a couple years, but they couldn't maintain it. 
you know, you see a DePaul, and you've, I've talked to the DePaul administration about when they went into the Big East and they weren't able to maintain it. And it, it scares the heck out of you because our culture here depends on putting 17,000 people in the CenturyLink. And in order to do that, we have to continue to be relevant in men's basketball. But you don't want to do that and sacrifice volleyball or women's basketball or soccer or baseball. But if we can't continually be relevant in our own league, if we can, then we can be relevant nationally. But the hardest thing is we've got different benchmarks. Our people don't understand what Villanova and St. John's and Georgetown and those schools have committed to making basketball consistently excellent. And we've got to make that transition. Uh, anything you missed about? There's a, there was an intimacy to... The Valley? Not just the Valley, but Creighton in those days, you know? Well, it, when, it I came just, to, when I came to Creighton, I don't think we had 10 full-time staff. I mean, I'm looking at your office here. This is not, yeah. a, this is not yeah. the old building here. Well, you know, there was, there, there was a difference in, you know, when I came, we <laughs> had like 10 full-time staff. We did everything together. You know, now... I think I can name everybody on our staff, but I couldn't guarantee it. Where <laughs> back then, you saw them all every day. You knew their wives and their yeah. kids. And what you know? What I miss about the valley is the relationships. People think about a league as if it was schools. Okay, you think Wichita, you think Drake. See, at my level, I think people. And we had there's some tremendous people in the Missouri Valley Conference, and we had some long-term relationships and friendships. And you leave all that now, you have to develop new ones. And so I miss that part of the valley because there are a lot of people there. And you do have an appreciation for what they do with what they have. You know, we, we judge, again, so much just based on the end result, not on here's your potential and here's your performance. Let's try to narrow that gap as much as possible. And there are schools and, and programs in the valley that do an unbelievable job of maximizing what they have. You don't really understand what you don't have until you get to another league. And even at our level, you're seeing, you know, what the ACC and the Pac-12 and what those schools have that we don't have. But uh, you, you miss that a little bit. You know, I was at a real small school. You understand that bigger isn't better. You know, Creighton's small compared to who we're expected to compete against. You understand bigger isn't better. And so I like the personal nature of the process. What's your favorite possession in this office? Your favorite thing in this office right there what is it describe it to me uh it's a picture of dj sokol we have dj sokol arena We've got dj sokol court dj sokol was i met him when he was 12 years old we hired dana altman and uh, david sokol called and said you don't know who i am which i did know who he was but my, you just hired my son's favorite coach uh you know we need good tickets to games and I said, well, Dave, you're obviously not very familiar with us because I can get you good tickets to games. And I told Dana the story, and Dana said, we need to take DJ out. So uh, we, I called the Sokols, and I said, Dana and I want to take DJ out to lunch. And Peggy said, well, let's see when David's going to be around. And David had told me he's a UNO guy. He's not going to give Creighton any money. So <laughs> I said, we don't need to take David out. We want to take DJ out. DJ was 12 years old, and Dana and I would go to lunch with him two or three times a year. Really? He was 12 going on 30, one of the most amazing human beings I ever met. But, uh, you know, he got Hodgkin's disease when he was 16. Uh, 
died when he was 18, but in those two years where from 16 to 18, you know, Martin Luther King said a man's character is not revealed in times of comfort and convenience, but rather in times of challenge and controversy. You see the character of the 16 to 18 year old and how he dealt with that. I look at him every day. Thanks for listening to Where I Come From. You can check us out on omaha.com slash podcasts or iTunes. Thanks to Bird Creek for the music. If you have ideas for guests, email me at dirk.chatelaine at owh.com.